Welcome to This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about our relationships with and impacts upon the environment. I'm Chris Cherniak. And I'm Claire Wiley. And joining us in the first part of the show is John Fusitich, who is a professor of wildlife ecology at Michigan Tech and the author of a book called Restoring the Balance, What Wolves Tell Us About Our Relationship with nature. And I'm really excited to welcome John on the show because uh, a lot of his studies are happening in Michigan, and mm -hmm. I am a Michigander. And I've been to mm -hmm. many of the beautiful islands, John, like the North and South Manitous, Beaver Island, but I've yet to get to Isle Royale, and it's been a place on my bucket list for a very long time since childhood. Uh, first of all, welcome to the show, and, and can you set the stage before we kind of get into you and your studies about Isle Royale and its environment? Yeah, you bet. My goodness, it's so so great to be here and, and share this bit of time with you. Um, Isle Royale, it's a uh, national park managed by the National Park Service. It's located in the northwest corner of Lake Superior. That's the biggest freshwater lake in the world and sits uh, in between the United States and Canada. Um, it's a wilderness island. The only way to get there is by boat or uh, to fly and land on a seaplane. And um, the only uh, humans are not near round residents there. Humans are only there for a part of the year, mostly for backpacking and some recreation like that. Um, and the, the, the star inhabitants of the islands of the island is uh, population of wolves and moose. And this moose population its primary cause of death for the moose is to be killed by wolves. And for wolves, the primary source of food is the moose. So the wolves and the moose are in this single predator, single prey hmm. uh, setup. And that makes, compared to other parts of nature, it makes us relatively simple. And so ecologists have been interested in that for a long time. The wolves have been there for about oh, 70 years. And the wolf and moose population has been studied continuously since 1959, one of the longest studies, or the longest study of any predator-prey system in the world. And now that you've kind of set the stage for this place that you've been studying, tell us about your background and what led you to the study of wolves, and particularly your wolf and moose studies, and why that relationship is so important. Right. Well, you know, as I mentioned, the study started in 1959, which is uh, quite a few years before I was born. Um, and the project has had three principal investigators uh, over the years. Um, I'm, I'm the third. And I started doing work on the island with the wolves and the moose in the mid-1990s. Um, it was, I didn't seek it out. It kind of just happened to me. I went to college and and had the great fortune as an undergraduate of, of working with the person who was leading the study before me, Rolf Peterson, and who is still with the project. And um, yeah, so I've, I've been there for, for 30 or so years now, and it's been a part of my, part of my life pretty intimately all that time. So 1959, they're introduced, these wolves are introduced to this island. Um, how many and why why this island in the 1950s wolves uh, a couple of things are happening all at the same time wolves made it to isle royal on their own ah. and uh coincidentally there were people who were very interested in bringing wolves to isle royal at that time and a year or two after there was evidence that wolves were already there humans went ahead and brought some wolves there anyways uh there were four, four wolves brought 
And it's thought that they all died before uh, ever becoming part of the population that was established uh, naturally. That was all uh, happening in the wolves getting there in the 1949, 1950, something like that. Mm -hmm. And then wolves being brought there a couple of years later. And then the, the intense studies of wolves begins in 1959. So they literally, I don't know what the distance would be that they had to swim, but they said, hey, there's an island, let's... There's a, where we, ice bridges, is that correct? Yes, yeah, yeah, no, get All in, right. get in. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, it's no, a wintertime excursion over to the island, okay. Yes, no, exactly. So they, the, the, the waters are you know, about 25 kilometers or you know, 15 miles, something like that. And the waters are really quite cold. Uh, even in the a warm summer day, the water temperature of Lake Superior is about 40 degrees Fahrenheit. And so an animal as small as a wolf would die from the cold temperatures if they were to swim. Mm -hmm. So the way the wolves got to Isle Royal, and the only way they can get there is by walking on the ice. Okay. So there they are. Um, and now, uh, over time, you have this relationship that's been, like you say, has been set up between wolf populations, moose populations. And do those populations vary up and down over time? I mean, that's, I assume that's all part of the research, to observe that relationship of populations and, and acts between the two. Yes, no, exactly. So the, the wolf and moose populations on Isle Royal, indeed, they do fluctuate over time. They go up and they go down. Mm -hmm. That's one of the kind of miraculous things about all of nature. All animal populations fluctuate. And so a big part of studying nature in general is to understand how and why those fluctuations take place. On Isle Royal, we focused on that to put some numbers on it. In a, in a typical year, there might be about, oh, say 20 to 30 wolves on Isle Royal. Mm. It's been as high as 50 and it's been as low as two. And then for mm. moose, uh, in a typical year, maybe 900 or 1,000 moose. And that also fluctuates quite a lot from 500 to 2,500. So that, you know, that's a five-fold increase from the minimum to the maximum. So, so our work has been all about kind of understanding to being able to describe those fluctuations and to be able to say something about how and why they occur. And you said that the population had gone all the way down to two, and I believe that wasn't that long ago that we were looking at this disparity between wolves and moose and maybe the changes that would occur because of that relationship. So now our populations have gone up. Is this driven by human intervention or was this a natural occurrence? Because I would assume that those ice bridges aren't as prevalent now with climate change. Yeah, no, exactly. So very, very complicated set of events that occurred, um, oh, say starting in about 2006, all the way up to re really to the present day. What, um, what's been going on is that um, over the decades, back to the 1950s, is that wolves would occasionally, like one or two wolves, would occasionally come to Isle Royal by crossing an ice bridge. Mm -hmm. When I say occasionally, maybe like once a decade or something like that. Mm -hmm. As time goes on, uh, the climate has warmed um, and then ice bridges become less frequent. And eventually ice bridges became just infrequent enough that wolves were never able to make it from Canada to Isle Royal. The reason this is important is because the island and the wolf population are relatively small, and that means they're vulnerable to inbreeding. And so the the occasional immigration would kind of mitigate those inbreeding concerns. Well, when the ice bridges are less frequent and there's not so much immigration, then the inbreeding becomes a problem. And so mm -hmm. from about 
2006 to 2016, the population really just dropped, dropped from kind of typical numbers down to just two. Hmm. For a handful of years, there were just two wolves. And then in 2019, the National Park Service decided to bring wolves back to Isle Royale to restore wolf predation. And um, since that happened in 2019, uh, wolf population has been doing very, very well. There's about 30 wolves on the island right now. Right, because uh, when you get down to two wolves, just a handful of wolves, moose population is going to uh, increase and perhaps increase in a in somewhat of a negative w- way, overpopulation. Yeah, no, that that's exactly what we would have expected, and that's exactly what happened. Yeah. And so during this time that the wolf population was getting so low, the moose population was going to some of the highest levels we'd ever seen, really doing pretty serious damage to their food supply, especially a particular tree called balsam fir. Mm. And um, yeah, they would have they would have done damage to the forest that would be hard to to repair, hard for nature to repair itself off. And so, uh, so bringing wolves back is kind of an important part of of keeping the moose population healthy. How much? How often do wolves, let's say, harvest kill a moose? What is their appetite for moose? How many moose are taken in a in a week or a month's time? Oh, sure. You know, uh, it varies greatly for two reasons. Uh, wolves live in packs. Those right. are basically family groups. As they imagine a set of parents, sometimes called an alpha pair. And then most of the rest of the wolves are offspring, either from that year or current years. So these family groups, they're they're very uh, wide ranging in their size. It can be, you know, four wolves all the way up to 10 or 12 wolves. Uh, that's those are common numbers for Isle Royal. In other places, the numbers can be even more wide ranging. You might imagine that a larger pack eats eats more frequently than a less frequent pack or than a smaller pack. Uh, accounting for that, you know, wolves are killing moose on Isle Royal every four to seven days is kind of typical. Hmm. But the other thing that's really important to know about wolves is that it's hard to do, hard to kill a moose. And so some of whether they're killing more frequently or less frequently has a lot to do with just how many moose are out there. If the moose are in good condition or not good condition, which has a lot to do with, say, winter severity. And uh, and that can that can really greatly um, increase the frequency or decrease the frequency at which wolves kill moose. And in other areas, when you're talking about introducing these wolves into an environment, um, with your book, you call it Restoring the Balance. What does that tell us in other places and what are the characteristics of wolves that have an impact on an environment and what are the changes that you see in general right right so um you know if nature is full of variation and so the shortest most honest answer about how wolves affect uh their prey populations and the ecosystems they live in is that it's a varied effect and it changes over over time sometimes their effect is is really a big deal and other times it's a bit less of a big deal while there's all that variation it is also at the same time the case that that the general effect of wolves or any large predator is to keep um the prey abundance a bit less and if we're thinking about different parts of the world this prey is white-tailed deer or elk or bison or moose again depending on where we're at and when those populations of prey those large herbivores when that's less um, as a result of predation, then it allows vegetative communities to, to flourish more. Um, so anyways, that's that's kind of the in a, in a thumbnail sketch, the effect of predators. 
We're speaking with John Busatish. He's the professor of wildlife ecology at Michigan Tech and the author of the book, Restoring the Balance, What Wolves Tell Us About Our Relationships with Nature. And, and to kind of follow along that, I know there was a study done at this point, it's probably several years ago, either uh, let's say in Montana or so, that showed not only when wolves were reintroduced, reintroduced to an ecosystem, not only did they start to control populations of elk and, and deer and such, but they, there were other biological benefits, most notably uh, the trees benefited. Like you, you alluded to it with the Douglas fir so, or the, one of those firs. Um, not only and not and and trees along the stream banks mm -hmm. uh, were able to grow uh, older, and their root systems helped to uh, benefit and support the stream bank, which in the end supported the trout populations, benefited the trout population because the water ran clear and had a higher quality that uh, benefited trout. So, so the trickle down effect, John, mm -hmm. is obvious when you have an alpha alpha predator uh, species like the wolf in an ecosystem. Right, and some of the, the mechanisms behind that are relatively easy to understand, all of those kind of knock-on effects. Yeah. If, you, if you're reducing ungulates, the herbivores, and then if you're allowing the vegetation to either flourish or be of a certain kind that grows when there's not so much herbivory, well, that vegetation, we're talking about the nature of the forest or the nature of the trees right along the creek or the nature of the grassland. When you're changing that, that's the habitat for all kinds of species. And so that's how it is that all these other species, whether it be songbirds or fish uh, or beavers, that's how all these other things end up changing because you're changing the basic structure of the, uh, of the habitat when these things go. That, that being said, I should say, I don't know that, I mean, for as important as the effects of carnivores are, I don't know that the effects on their ecosystem is the most important reason for restoring them. I think the most important reason for restoring them is that humans were wrong to have extirpated them in the first place. Mm. And um, basically we extirpated them out of hatred. And um, and, and now we're, we're at a point in our human history where we have better views of carnivores and we have the ability to right some of those past wrongs. Truthfully, I, th I think that's the, the more important reason to be restore, restore, restoring carnivores. Mm. And so when you're conducting these studies, what is that process like? You know, the centerpiece of our work is a winter field season. And the winter field season involves uh, flying from a small aircraft. We're talking a, a plane that has room for a pilot and one passenger. And, um, and you're flying over a frozen landscape. So imagine all white and uh, the leaves have fallen off of the trees. So you can see the ground pretty well. And what's especially important is you can see the tracks of animals uh, from the small aircraft this is what allows us to see so many things from, from an airplane. This is how we count the wolves. This is how we count the moose. This is how we're able to see how frequently it is that the wolves kill the moose. And so a great deal comes from that. We also have summer field season that, that lasts for a couple of months. A lot of that work has to do with uh, hiking in the backcountry. We rely on, on citizen scientists, volunteers to help us with that. And in all of this hiking, one of the things we're looking for is places where moose have died and when we find a place where moose have died, we perform a necropsy. And uh, we, we learn a ton about the living population by knowing what the condition of these moose are basically right at the time that they died. How old were they? Were they in really good shape or not such good shape at the time of their death? What was the cause of death? All these kinds of things. That comes from just putting on a lot of miles in the backcountry looking for these carcasses. 
All right, let's talk about the word used, hatred, and, and fear, unwarranted and otherwise, with respect to wolves. Where does it find its... Uh, is there an origin story associated with that? Um, who's, who's to blame? I want to yeah. name names. <laughs> besides, yeah, Liam, no, I, uh, besides John, Liam Neeson and his movie, The Gray. That would be right, one. Right, exactly. We won't talk too much about that movie. Yeah, but, exactly. Uh, I'm sure you're, uh, you prefer not to mention that one. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, for sure. You know, one of the things that humans do, we just can't control ourselves in this way, is we turn animals into symbols. Mm. We just do it. It appears to be part of our nature. And I don't know that there's anything fundamentally wrong with that, but sometimes animals suffer because of that. And so wolves are two things for humans. They are symbols of all of the things that we love about nature, and they are also symbols of all the things that we are afraid of about nature. I don't think anyone knows exactly why this is the case. Why it is that wolves have this kind of outsized role as terms of symbols? But a couple of ideas that come to mind is that, um, you know, I, th I think when we look at a wolf, I think we're not sure whether to admire them because of how similar they are to us. They live in family groups, really distinctive along, among uh, large mammals and large carnivores, but that's exactly how humans live. And for those of us humans who like to eat meat, well, so do, so do wolves. And so I, I think we look at wolves and we're not sure whether to admire them or be jealous of them or see them as competitors. And from all of that comes all of these thoughts of love and fear, depending on the on the person holding those feelings. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this. I'm from New Jersey, and back in the 60s, my first introduction with wolves was via uh, Hollywood and, and Disney, right? The, the classic cartoon wolf, uh, conniving, um, to be feared, uh, un unpredictable, and I think I think a lot of that fear also comes from the fact that they they travel in packs. It's not a singular animal like a mountain lion or cougar uh, that also has some level of fear associated, and, and, and you know, respectfully so. Um, but I think there's something about animals that travel in packs that that create uh, an extra level of anxiety. Yeah, I suppose so. Uh, and and uh, perhaps the extra anxiety, and as I mentioned again, just the extra connection between humans and nature. And, and you were making some nice comparisons with, with uh, mountain lions. And of course, this is where things are a little bit odd, because like a mountain lion actually is a genuinely dangerous animal when yeah. it comes to human safety. And occasionally, humans are killed by mountain lions. Humans are occasionally killed by grizzly bears. But, um, but to be killed by a wolf is stunningly rare. And so there's really this kind of misproportion fear that we assign to them. Again, some of this is just part of human nature, but we are also smart enough to kind of control our fears and uh, put them in check when that's the right thing to do. So when people are reading your book, what are some of the biggest takeaways that you would like mm -hmm. people to go away with? I think there's two messages in the book. One is about the role and effect of climate change on our protected areas like national mm -hmm. parks. Um, and we have to decide whether to, uh, when climate change takes something away from a national park or protected area, are we gonna fight 
against that and try to save whatever it is that climate change is threatening? Or do we just say, hey, that's the new world that we live in and some of these things might not be be part of that new world. Um, the National Park Service is wrestling with this question and the decision to bring wolves back to Isle Royal after the loss of those ice bridges was, was what that was all about. It's not a resolved issue in the big picture. So that's part of what the book is about. The other part of the book is really about uh, the time that I spent on Isle Royal and what it is that I learned about the wolves and the moose themselves. Most important lesson there is um, is that you know wolves and moose they are they have lives. They have their own lives. They have their own interests. They have their own aspirations for what happens later in the day and tomorrow and the next day, and they can be respected and cared for just on those terms because those are things that we connect with as well because we have interests and uh and lives our own selves and so there's a strong strong connection between their lives and ours that's the other probably more important message of the book well do you see programs going around on around the country that are um you know endeavoring to reintroduce wolves as as beneficial um and where maybe where are there states or regions where wolves shouldn't be reintroduced or maybe it would be too complicated to reintroduce them? I'm thinking of Utah. <laughs> sure, sure. You know, um, uh, the state of Colorado has recently embarked on a project to bring wolves back to that state. That's probably the, the newest and most notable sort of effort to bring wolves back. Um, there were ongoing efforts. The things have been going on for a while and, and still going on to re, to bring Mexican wolves back mm -hmm. uh, to the desert southwest and then to to do better by red wolves, right. which is taking place in the east. And, um, and, and so anyways, those are some of the places where wolves are trying to do better. Um, wolves used to live basically every part of the lower 48. Mm. And um, there's no one that I know of who's arguing that wolves need to be brought back to all of these places. Right. But at the same time, wolves currently only live in about 15% of the places that they used to in the lower 48. So I know we can do much better than we currently are. How much better? I'm not sure definitely a lot better and um and so the, the the reason that this question is so important about wolves is because it it speaks to so many other animals as well the biodiversity crisis has two elements of it one is global extinction of species but the other possibly more insidious element of the biodiversity crisis is that so many species most species in fact have been lost from most of their geographic ranges Mm -hmm. but they're still not like at risk of going extinct from the planet. So it's the species that have been lost from so many places. That's where the real action is, I think, on the biodiversity crisis in terms of mitigating that, making that better. And that forces the question, okay, how many of the former places that animals used to live, should they live now? It's really a question about how much sharing do humans want to do? Because it'll it'll take you know it'll be inconvenient in some cases. It'll cause us to restrict some of our activities in some cases. And so it's really about sharing the planet with other kinds of creatures. 
And we are going to be getting into some of these protections um, in just a moment right. with our second guest. But we are so glad that you came on the show, John, and that you taught us a little bit more about the behaviors of wolves and why they're important right. and why we should be um, respecting and protecting. And where would people go if they wanted to learn more about Isle Royal and, and the wolf studies there and also your writings? Right. Uh, the easiest place for finding out about Isle Royal is isleroyalwolf.org. Uh, easy to type into any internet um, uh, search engine. And then um, Restoring the Balance, any place that you buy books, uh, is, is where you can get a copy of the book. Fantastic. That is John Vucetic, and he is a professor of wildlife ecology at Michigan Tech and also the author of Restoring the Balance, What Wolves Tell Us About Our Relationship with Nature. Thank you, John, for being on the show. Yeah, thanks, John. Oh, it's so great to be here. Thank you so much. Well, uh, last week or so, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service denied a listing petition from the Center for Biological Diversity and other wildlife conservation groups seeking federal protection for gray wolves in the northern Rocky Mountains. The petition sought to relist gray wolves in the northern Rockies under the Endangered Species Act. This would have stopped states like Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming from allowing the killing of wolves, which is currently allowed under state laws in those three states. Joining us to talk more about this decision and its impacts is Colette, Colette Adkins, Senior Attorney and Director of the Carnivore Conservation Program at the Center for Biological Diversity. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Colette, on this green earth. Thank, thanks for having me. Okay, I hope I got uh, that introduction correct. Let's, let's, but let's back up first and talk a little bit about the gray wolf. Uh, what is its range and, and say, populations as best we know at this time? Well, the gray wolf once roamed from the west coast all the way through to the northeast, only absent from the southeastern United States where the red wolf once lived. Mm. But its populations have have shrunk dramatically and was nearly extirpated in the lower 48 states due to government-sponsored bounty programs, trapping, poisons. So now the wolf remains in just a few core areas in the, in the Great Lakes region where I live. Mm -hmm. I live in Minnesota. In the Northern Rocky Mountain region, uh, mostly Idaho, Montana, and Wyoming. But as wolves have grown in numbers uh, with protections of the Endangered Species Act, they were able to disperse and start to repopulate West Coast states um, like the, uh, Oregon, Washington, and now even um, some wolves in California. And then in the Southern Rockies, we get a few dispersing wolves coming down from the Northern Rockies down to Colorado. And then just this December, as part of a historic reintroduction effort, we've gotten um, 10 wolves reintroduced in Colorado. And we may have some breeding wolves in the Northeastern United States that still has really prime habitat. But uh, it's been difficult to be able to document uh, wolves breeding there. But there are some really important citizen scientist efforts there to try to show that we do have um, at least some wolves in the Northeast. 
but you know, all in all, you know, there probably were uh, a couple million wolves historically, mm. and now you know we're closer to like seven or eight thousand. Wow. Okay. So uh, let's go back to that word extirpation. What does that mean? Why was it done? So extirpation is just is similar to extinction, but it means there were you know a few that remained. So in Minnesota, where I live, far northeastern Minnesota, huge wilderness area wolves were never never gone from that area so although governmental programs across the country you know part of that you know outdated thinking that that wolves you know mountain lions uh grizzly bears that those were just um uh, competitors mm -hmm. that needed to be killed you know that was the thinking in the late 1800s early 1900s and and we People sought to get them off the landscape, but of course, with the protection of the Endangered Species Act and changing values that now recognize the, the ecological importance of these animals, they've started to come back. So they've started to come back, but yet their numbers, you know, come back from what is effectively <laughs> quite possibly near zero. Um, and that's why the Center for Biological Diversity and the other groups recently petitioned the U.S. Uh, Fish and Wildlife Service to, to list the, these, uh, the gray wolves in the northern Rocky Mountains under the Endangered Species Act. Is, is that correct? That's right. So wolves right now are protected across the lower 48, except for in the northern Rocky Mountain states. They lost their protections due to congressional action. Mm. There was actually a rider uh, attached to a must-passed spending bill back in 2011, and that legislation passed and removed protections from wolves then, even though a court case had just ruled that they still uh, were entitled to protection under the Endangered Species Act. But since then, um, in particular in the last few years, efforts by Idaho and Montana in particular uh, to drive down wolf populations to very low numbers uh, have gotten environmentalists like, like me and others at the center and in our partner organizations to be very concerned about uh, what's happening there in the northern Rocky Mountain states. We're seeing all that progress towards recovery that occurred after listing under the act just erased. And we were hoping to get them back on the list uh, because the states have shown themselves to be inadequate protectors of these really important animals. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. As an example, um, in the state of Idaho, you can uh, a person can hire private contractors to kill wolves and also lets hunters and trappers kill an unlimited number of wolves and uh, year-round, I mean, it's not even a bag limit per se. I, I hate to use a bag, but, but I mean, there's not a limit on the number of wolves that can be killed in the state of Idaho? It's really frustrating that these states have taken this really unregulated approach, you know, treating wolves like, like we once did before we knew better, that they just should be... Um, uh, 
taken by any means uh, in Idaho in particular, it really is just awful. People can even run them down with snowmobiles. Mm-hmm. They, they, their, their value on this landscape is no longer recognized by these state wildlife managers. Um, so we were hoping that the Fish and Wildlife Service would respond to our petition and get wolves back under federal protections, recognizing that the state was doing an inadequate job. Mm-hmm. But the Fish and Wildlife Service denied our petition. So, yeah, where what is the reasoning behind that denial? And I, I have a hard time believing it's education and not being educated about the importance of these animals or, uh, or these animals in general. So what is the reasoning behind that? So the Fish and Wildlife Service in denying our petition relied on these uh, decades old recovery criteria that are you know back from the 1990s where the Fish and Wildlife Service then had said, well, as long as the states just keep 150 wolves or so in each of those three states, then they don't need federal protections. But, uh, you know, since then, uh, we know that wolves, for one, that the landscape uh, can hold many more wolves. And for two, that those very low numbers are inadequate to ensure the long-term viability of wolves. What we've learned, there's been so much science published that shows that you need a much larger population size to be able to withstand all the threats that wolves face. You know, things that range from um, uh, genetic inbreeding, when you have small populations, Mm -hmm. you can have really, um, uh, you can lack a diverse uh, genetic structure that can allow animals to respond to all the threats that the environment faces, you know, especially considering under climate change, you need all that variability to allow um, uh, adaptations to occur. So from that all the way down to, you know, poaching, vehicle strikes, and then most importantly, just all the killing that's being authorized under state management, we know that wolves just cannot survive long-term when they're being reduced to those um, very minimal numbers. But the Fish and Wildlife Service relied on those decades-old recovery criteria and said that it's that it's okay if we lose most of our wolves in the region. Um, and we disagree. We think the service didn't rely on modern science, and that's what the Endangered Species Act requires, is reliance on best available science. So that's one of the main aspects of our argument is that the service relied on these outdated recovery criteria instead of looking at modern science on on what wolves really need to be viable in the long term. So ethics aside, even science is telling them to go in one direction, but they're moving in the other. So what do you do now? Hmm. Yeah, so we filed the first uh, step in in filing a lawsuit is to file a notice of intent to sue. So that's what we did in early February is tell the Fish and Wildlife Service that we will bring a lawsuit in 60 days unless they 
they changed their mind and we don't have any reason to believe that they'll do that. So we'll be filing a lawsuit, you know, just a couple months here and we will make, make the case that the science shows that they should have been relisted, that the, that the states are inadequately protecting wolves, that the Fish and Wildlife Service relied on old science to determine that it's okay if that many wolves die. We're also pointing to the fact that wolves haven't recovered in other places outside the Northern Rockies, like the Southern Rockies, you know, the Colorado, the West Coast states, um, California, for example. One thing that makes the ESA, the Endangered Species Act, a really powerful statute is that it, it defines recovery in terms of the places where an animal could recover, that it needs to be recovered in all significant portions of its range. And the service instead just really wants to rely on the fact that we've got wolves in a couple core areas here in the Northern Rockies uh, and ignore the fact that we haven't had recovery in these other places. And in wolf recovery in the Southern Rockies along the West Coast absolutely depends on recovery progress in the Northern Rockies. That's where you get those dispersing wolves right. that will allow that uh, those populations to grow over time. Okay, let me reintroduce you. We're speaking with Colette Atkins. She's the Senior Attorney and Director of the Carnivore Conservation Program at the Center for Biological Diversity. And we're talking about the recent decision by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to not protect gray wolves in the northern Rocky Mountains under the Endangered Species Act. So, so Colette, you, you, there, there's an important word, word there you mentioned. It's recovery. And I think that's a, um, probably the source of a lot of conversation uh, mm -hmm. as how you define recovery, right? That, is there a specific... A number or specific conditions that would say, okay, the wolves have sufficiently recovered and uh, their populations are healthy and e ecosystems are benefiting from their presence, et cetera, uh, that say a rancher might have a different definition of recovery. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that's one of the things that we've really had to push on the Fish and Wildlife Service. And we've been successful year after year, decade after decade, winning these lawsuits on wolves and other species because the Fish and Wildlife Service really has an unambitious and illegal view of what recovery entails. So the Endangered Species Act is a really powerful statute. And part of it is because it's more than just survival. It's not just about preventing extinction of species. It's, it, it talks about allowing species to fulfill those ecosystem roles, mm -hmm. to conserve at the species level, to get them restored to those significant portions of their range. And that's why we have to bring the service back to court again, because once again, they're really relying on these outdated views of what it means to truly recover a species. You can't do that unless you have them in high enough numbers to be truly viable over the long term and to withstand all the threats that we pose for these animals. But also, they certainly aren't recovered when they're absent or near absent from large portions of their range, like in the Northeast or in the Southern Rockies.
it feels like also if we look back at history, we can learn from that as well. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the things that that really frustrates conservationists is that wolves could have been a really wonderful success story. We did, you know, after wolves were reintroduced uh, in, in Yellowstone and with the protections of the act, we were able to right that, that wrong of the past when we, when humans were trying to exterminate wolves and they came back and their numbers were growing. But now uh, with politics uh, really taking precedent over science, now their numbers are back in decline and the service seems okay with just standing by as these states do squander all that progress towards recovery that had been made. And, and circling back to the states of, say, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, which have active programs where, where you can go obtain a license or so and, and hunt and kill wolves, are, do we have a sense of what percentage of wolves that are being taken by, say, sport-related hunters versus, say, ranchers who are, you know, want to make sure that there are no wolves on their ranch and trying to protect their livestock versus, like you say, so wolves that may be getting hit by cars. Is there any sense of a breakdown there? Well, I don't think uh, we have access to numbers at that fine of a scale for all of those states. Mm -hmm. It really does depend um, from state to state and even within those states. There are areas where wolves are regu have regulated hunting seasons mm -hmm. and there can be quotas there. But then on top of that, you do have the killing by uh, livestock operators. Even though there's just so much science that shows that simply shooting, trapping a wolf does not solve these problems be where with conflicts between livestock and wolves, what, what the operators really need to do is put in uh, changes to their practices, good animal husbandry, stop leaving out carcasses of of dead animals that, that attract predators to the property, take care of sick and injured animals because wolves go after the weak, bring in animals that are calving, put them, put out guard dogs, fencing, and just take care of your livestock be out there, have human presence that scares away wolves. But instead of that, we just see this, uh, this short-term approach to just shoot the wolf and uh and then the problems problems even get worse because packs don't do well when they're broken up mm. they can't take down an elk um unless they have that intact pack structure so when hunters or ranchers or others break up packs in this way we see just a compounding of these problems and conflicts uh we, we have just a few more minutes I know we've been focusing the conversation again around those three states, uh, Rocky Mountain states of sorts. D do attitudes shift or are there any d different attitudes with respect to wolves in different parts of the country? I'm thinking of, of your state, Minnesota, um, and, and maybe northern peninsula of Michigan. We were just talking to uh, Professor John Vucetich, who, who's done a lot of work on uh, Isle Royal and the wolves there. Are there different attitudes with respect to wolves, depending on where you are in the country? Oh, for sure. Attitudes range even within states. Um, you know, there's 
there's so many people that absolutely um, want wolves on the landscape, want to see ambitious recovery. They recognize both the ecological value of the wolves, but then also can see that these are family creatures that are smart and intelligent and have these complicated uh, social structures based on the family unit. You know, people you know, that invite dogs into their homes know that canids like wolves and dogs suffer tremendously, that they really deserve to be treated better than to be left suffering in a leg hold trap, for example. But then there's others that just recognize that wolves might pose an inconvenience to their their economic situation if they're uh, a livestock operator or they want to have the thrill of hunting a wolf. Mm. And that's why we have all these different pressures in terms of how to manage wolves. You know, Minnesota, where I live, you know, we, we've got them protected as threatened, not endangered, which allows wolves that are involved in conflict situations to be killed, but, other, but doesn't allow any sport hunting. And Minnesotans have shown an amazing ability to coexist with wolves. You know, we've never exterminated our wolves. We have just about 3,000 wolves in Minnesota. Hmm. Uh, very few livestock operators experience conflicts with wolves, and those that do, you know, are given tools to deal with it. And I do think it could be uh, a template for other parts of the country that just really haven't gotten there to accepting the idea of how to live with wolves. Yeah, and and are there any documented cases of wolves in Minnesota uh, attacking people or 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 otherwise interactions there's, like that? Yeah, there's just so very few instances of wolves attacking people, um, and in the few that have occurred, there have been you know strange things that have happened with the wolves in terms of injuries or genetic deformities, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, I feel blessed to be in a state that has wolves. I try so hard to see wolves in the wild. Yeah. You know, I go up to prime wolf country every year, multiple times. I've only twice ever gotten a glimpse of a wolf and I treasure those experiences. Wow, and and have you heard them though? If you don't see them, have you had the I experience I do enjoy camping up them. in the Boundary Waters wilderness and that's one of my favorite things is to be sitting around a campfire and hearing those howls in the distance. Okay, so we, we have to wrap up. Again, what is the next step? What can, what can we do to help support the Center for Biological Diversity on this issue? Well, I encourage people to sign up for our action alerts by going to our website, uh, biologicaldiversity.org. And uh, if you sign up for our, our weekly newsletter, there'll be links to various things where you can you know click here to send a letter to the decision makers. Um, but for now, just stay tuned and you'll see in a couple months, we'll be um, bringing our lawsuit against the Fish and Wildlife Service and hopefully force them to do the right thing. All right, Colette Adkins. She's the Senior Attorney and Director of the Carnivore Conservation Program at the Center for Biological Diversity. Uh, the center's website? Biologicaldiversity.org. All right, perfect. Colette, thank you again so much for joining us this morning on This Green Earth. <laughs> Thank you for having me.